Chapter 9 of Book 1 of Les Miserables, Volume 2, by Victor Hugo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Father Ziley. Les Miserables, Volume 2, by Victor Hugo. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. Book One, Waterloo. Chapter Nine, The Unexpected. There were three thousand five hundred of them. They formed a front a quarter of a league in extent. They were giant men on colossal horses. There were six and twenty squadrons of them and they had behind them to support them Lefebvre Denouet's division, the one hundred and six picked gendarmes, the light cavalry of the guard, eleven hundred and ninety-seven men, and the lancers of the guard of eight hundred and eighty lances. They wore casks without horse-tails, and cuirasses of beaten iron, with horse-pistols in their holsters, and long sabre-swords. That morning the whole army had admired them, when, at nine o'clock, with braying of trumpets and all the music playing, let us watch o'er the safety of the empire, they had come in a solid column, with one of their batteries on their flank, another in their center, and deployed in two ranks between the roads to Genappe and Frischmont, and taken up their position for battle in that powerful second line, so cleverly arranged by Napoleon which, having on its extreme left Kellerman's cuirassiers, and on its extreme right Milaud's cuirassiers, had, so to speak, two wings of iron. Aide-de-Camp Bernard carried them the Emperor's orders. Ney drew his sword and placed himself at their head. The enormous squadrons were set in motion. Then a formidable spectacle was seen. All their cavalry, with upraised swords, standards, and trumpets flung to the breeze, formed in columns by divisions, descended by a simultaneous movement, and like one man, with the precision of a brazen battering ram, which is effecting a breach, the hill of La Belle Alliance, plunged into the terrible depths in which so many men had already fallen, disappeared there in the smoke, then emerging from that shadow, reappeared on the other side of the valley, still compact and in close ranks, mounting at a full trot, through a storm of grape-shot which burst upon them, the terrible muddy slope of the tableland of Mont Saint-Jean. They ascended, grave, threatening, imperturbable. In the intervals between the musketry and the artillery, their colossal trampling was audible. Being two divisions, there were two columns of them. Wathier's division held the right, Delort's division was on the left. It seemed as though two immense adders of steel were to be seen crawling towards the crest of the tableland. It traversed the battle like a prodigy. Nothing like it had been seen since the taking of the great redoubt of Moskva by the heavy cavalry. Mirat was lacking there, but Ney was again present. It seemed as though that mass had become a monster, and had but one soul. Each column undulated and swelled like the ring of a polyp. 
they could be seen through a vast cloud of smoke which was rent here and there. A confusion of helmets, of cries, of sabers, a stormy heaving of the cruppers of horses amid the cannons and the flourish of trumpets, a terrible and disciplined tumult, over all the cuirasses like the scales on the hydra. These narrations seem to belong to another age. Something parallel to this vision appeared, no doubt, in the ancient Orphic epics, which told of the centaurs, the old hippanthropes, those titans with human heads and equestrian chests, who scaled Olympus at a gallop, horrible, invulnerable, sublime, gods and beasts. Odd numerical coincidence. Twenty-six battalions rode to meet twenty-six battalions. Behind the crest of the plateau, in the shadow of the masked battery, the English infantry formed into thirteen squares, two battalions to the square, in two lines, with seven in the first line, six in the second, the stocks of their guns to their shoulders, taking aim at that which was on the point of appearing, weighted, calm, mute, motionless. They did not see the cuirassiers, and the cuirassiers did not see them. They listened to the rise of this flood of men. They heard the swelling noise of three thousand horse, the alternate and symmetrical tramp of their hoofs at full trot, the jingling of the cuirasses, the clang of the sabres, and a sort of grand and savage breathing. There ensued a most terrible silence. Then, all at once, a long file of uplifted arms, brandishing sabres, appeared above the crest, and casks, trumpets, and standards, and three thousand heads with gray mustaches, shouting, Vive l'Empereur! All this cavalry debauched on the plateau, and it was like the appearance of an earthquake. All at once a tragic incident. On the English left, on our right, the head of the column of cuirassiers reared up with a frightful clamor. On arriving at the culminating point of the crest, ungovernable, utterly given over to fury and their course of extermination of the squares and cannon, the cuirassiers had just caught sight of a trench, a trench between them and the English. It was the hollow road of Ohain. It was a terrible moment. The ravine was there, unexpected, yawning, directly under the horse's feet, two fathoms deep, between its double slopes. The second file pushed the first into it, and the third pushed on the second. The horses reared and fell backward, landed on their haunches, slid down, all four feet in the air, crushing and overwhelming the riders, and there being no means of retreat, the whole column being no longer anything more than a projectile, the force which had been acquired to crush the English crushed the French. The inexorable ravine could only yield when filled. Horses and riders rolled their pell-mell, grinding each other, forming but one mass of flesh in this gulf. When this trench was full of living men, the rest marched over them and passed on. Almost a third of Dubois' brigade fell into that abyss. This began the loss of the battle. A local tradition, which evidently exaggerates matters, says 
that two thousand horses and fifteen hundred men were buried in the hollow road of Ohain. This figure probably comprises all the other corpses which were flung into this ravine the day after the combat. Let us note in passing that it was Dubois' sorely tried brigade, which, an hour previously, making a charge to one side, had captured the flag of the Lüneburg battalion. Napoleon, before giving the order for this charge of Milaud's cuirassiers, had scrutinized the ground, but had not been able to see that hollow road, which did not even form a wrinkle on the surface of the plateau. Warned, nevertheless, and put on the alert by the little white chapel, which marks its angle of junction with the Nivelle Highway, he had probably put a question as to the possibility of an obstacle to the guide Lacoste. The guide had answered no. We might almost affirm that Napoleon's catastrophe originated in that sign of a peasant's head. Other fatalities were destined to arise. Was it possible that Napoleon should have won that battle? We answer no. Why? Because of Wellington? Because of Blucher? No. Because of God. Bonaparte victor at Waterloo? That does not come within the law of the nineteenth century. Another series of facts was in preparation, in which there was no longer any room for Napoleon. The ill-will of events had declared itself long before. It was time that this vast man should fall. The excessive weight of this man in human destiny disturbed the balance. This individual alone counted for more than a universal group. These plethoras of all human vitality concentrated in a single head, the world mounting to the brain of one man, this would be mortal to civilization were it to last. The moment had arrived for the incorruptible and supreme equity to alter its plan. Probably the principles and the elements on which the regular gravitations of the moral as of the material world depend had complained. Smoking blood, overfilled cemeteries, mothers in tears, these are formidable pleaders. When the earth is suffering from too heavy a burden, there are mysterious groanings of the shades to which the abyss lends an ear. Napoleon had been denounced in the infinite, and his fall had been decided on. He embarrassed God. Waterloo is not a battle. It is a change of front on the part of the universe. End of Book 1, Chapter 9 Reading by Father Ziley of Detroit